Well, greetings and salutations, everybody. Welcome to my YouTube channel. My name is John Campia, and this is a companion video. What are companion videos? Well, I'm awfully glad that you asked. See, every day on the John Campus Show, Monday through Friday, we take the second half of the show, take your live comments and questions that you guys send in via the tip link. However, we normally don't have enough time to get through all the live questions, so we gather those up and we address them here on companion videos. Now, of course, we are a bit behind because on Friday, our show got cut well short because the internet went out in our neighborhood just as we were really getting going into the live questions. And then, of course, we didn't have a show on Monday. That's when I'm recording this right now, kind of observing the holiday and taking advantage of that. So we've got a lot to get caught up on. So let's not waste any time and get right to it. We're going to start things off here with Raymond Reddington, who writes on. Hi, John. I would like to follow up on when I messaged you to say that I was going to go see F9 and 4DX. Yeah, was, a lot of people were writing me about the 4DX theaters. I've never been to them, uh, but I want to try that out sometime. Anyway, I saw it Sunday night and I absolutely loved it. Well, good for you. I thought it was absolute total garbage, but I'm glad. You, I want people to love every movie they see, even the movies I don't like. So I'm glad you had a good time. Anyway, could the story have been better? Yes, but you aren't watching a Fast and the Furious film. Uh, because you want a good story. You're watching it because you want some good action. Well, okay, let, let me pause there for a second and say this. That is too often used as an excuse for bad filmmaking. Now, yes, you can have good, fun, exciting movies that aren't very good with the story, and you go, hey, you're not trying to be Shakespeare, but see, this didn't have good action. Good action excites you, it thrills you, it immerses you. And if that did that for you, awesome. For me, it was complete just garbage visual noise because action isn't exciting when there's no stakes, there's no effects, and there's no plausibility to it. Like, I might as well, honestly, I might as well be watching Roadrunner and Coyote. Like, there's no stakes involved. Like, literally, you can have people surrounded by machine gun fire, they're never going to get touched. You can have people doing the most absurd things that have no possibility of being real. You can have literally have Dominic Toretto being jumped on by 30 soldiers and he wins the fight. And even if he starts to lose, he can literally pull a concrete structure down single-handedly by himself by chains and then survive it and then survive it. When there's no stakes and there's no possibility of failure and there's nothing that can go possibly wrong, there's no excitement. And if there's no excitement, the action is not good. Now, again, if you had that experience, awesome. But for me, it completely takes away any of that. And why in other Fast and the Furious movies, just the fact that they had the slightest tiny little hint of plausibility got me invested in it. But in this one, I just found it to be total crash, but I'm trash, but I'm glad you liked it. Anyway, uh, and I think it absolutely delivered. I disagree. I love the Edinburgh scene where Dom and Jacob were fighting all over the city. I did not, but I'm glad you did. Anyway, the 4DX experience for the film was fantastic. Uh, I always, you know, I've never been to a 4DX, but I always thought that is the kind of movie you'd want to see in 4DX, you know, with that sort of uh, that sort of action kind of film. It seems to me like that would be the one that you'd want to see there. Anyway, it made you feel like you were right in the film. Uh, you're right in the film and the scene when Ludacris and Tyrese go somewhere together. Unless not, don't even get me started on that. In the third act of the film was brilliant. It felt like a roller coaster. Uh, I would recommend 4DX for everyone who is going to see the film with lots of car chases like Fast and the Furious. I have been to 4DX to see Age of Ultron and Birds of Prey, and I personally didn't think it was any good in those films. I must, uh, I much prefer IMAX. 
even though you hate the film, I would recommend you. I would recommend seeing in 4DX. Now, a bad movie is a bad movie, no matter what screen you put it on. I think it may make you enjoy it a bit more. No, it won't. Uh, but I think it's worth it just for the experience. Love the show and everything you, Rob, uh, Aaron, and Kimberly do. By the way, seeing Black Widow in IMAX a week on Sunday. So excited. No, listen. And again, despite how much I drone on about how absolutely terrible and pathetic garbage F9 is, and that's coming from a fan of Fast and the Furious 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8. Um, it's all subjective, and the important thing is, did you have a good experience? And if you going to that theater enhance that experience, all the better. All the better. Like I said, even after I saw Fast 9 and saw what a completely horrendous crime against humanity and filmmaking that it is, I remember thinking, you know, with the way people describe the 4DX cinemas, this feels like a movie you'd want to see in that. Whether you like the movie or not, and I clearly don't, but it's it seems like that's the kind of experience. So I'm glad that you had a good time, number one. I'm glad that 4DX cinema enhanced your experience for you. And I'm glad that even if I don't agree, I'm glad that you shared your experience. So thank you for that, Raymond Reddington. I appreciate that. All right, next up. Uh, Raymond Reddington also writes, Hey, John and Rob. Thinking of buying some hot toys as they look cool, but they are so bloody expensive. That is why I only have four. Of all the years that I've admired and loved and talked about hot toys, I only own four of them, specifically because of that. They are so bloody expensive. I'm not saying they're not worth it. I'm just saying they're expensive. Anyway, thinking of buying two a year. I make uh, 1,256 pounds a month. I don't know what that translates into. Uh, how many of them would you suggest I get per year with the money I earn? That's I, I cannot answer that question. That is not my place to answer that question at all. Listen. Different people have different vices. I did some, re found out that the average American spends about $300 a month on alcohol. I don't drink. So if the average American spends $300 a month on alcohol and I don't drink, is it then unreasonable for somebody like me to spend $300 a month on a hot toy? Maybe not. But again, that's for you to decide. You spend your money on the things that are important to you. And if after you take care of all of your expenses and your living expenses and your needs, if you still have enough money left over per month, we call that disposable income. And whatever you want to spend your disposable income is up to you. All right. I, I cannot even begin to suggest to you whether you should buy one or two or three months. That is not my purview. But again, take all the, the money you make, take all of your required expenses, and what you're left over with is your disposable income. And if you're okay with buying one or two, and that means you can't go out any night that week, but that's what's important to you, then, you know, hey, if it's your expendable income, you go and spend it on whatever you like, my friend. All right, next up. Uh, let's see. Marie Seifring writes, John, what is your take on the good, the Bart, and the uh, Loki arrival, John? Hold on a second. What is your take on the, the good, the Bart, and the Loki uh, and Loki, a short arriving on Disney Plus July 7th. Apparently, Tom Hiddleston will voice Loki in his first appearance on The Simpsons. I have no I have no thoughts or opinions on it because uh, I, obviously I haven't watched it. Um, the concept is neat. But listen, The Simpsons has been around a long time, right? And they've done tons of quick little gimmick things like this. And quite often they work out to be great. So I'm sure this will be fun. 
Obviously, this is a byproduct of the fact that Disney now owns The Simpsons, so I'm sure that has something to do with it. But, I mean, I'll look forward to watching it when it comes out. I think they're short. The last Simpsons short they did where Maggie goes to the uh, amusement park, that that was brilliant. That was fantastic. So uh, I'll look forward to it, but other than that, I don't really have many thoughts on it, other than the fact that, oh, that's neat, so we'll see how it turns out. All right, thanks for that, Marie. Next up, BK Dan writes, John. Someone wrote in and asked about why others who were at Collider weren't as successful. Uh, You were saying that it's your talent to recognize talent in others. All I heard was, uh, it's not my kung fu in regards to not being good at trailer reactions. Well, I mean, yeah, listen, I think the key, and again, somebody wrote in the other day asking, you know, why aren't all the other people who used to be at the AMC and Collider era, why aren't they having, you know, success that is equivalent to what their talent actually is. And my my response to that is simply this. I think you're seeing a bunch of people from that era not having success that I believe equates to the real talent they actually possess is mainly because they don't know how to utilize the talent they have. And I honestly think amongst all the weaknesses that I have, one or two of my strengths lies in identifying talented people and also being able to identify how to best leverage their talent. Put people, one of the main jobs of leadership is to put people in a position where they can succeed. Try not to put them in positions that they won't succeed. Put them in positions that they can succeed. Um, And that's really been a big belief of mine. And I've watched some people from, you know, who I used to work with, whatever, doing some things online. And I I sometimes just think they shouldn't be doing that. They should be doing this other thing because that plays more into the talents and the gifts they have. And I think they would explode if they do, but it's not my place. You know, it's not my place to talk about that. And look, the key thing is as long as everybody um, out there is doing something that they enjoy doing and they're having a good time, that's all that matters. That's really all that matters. And yes, just like me, You know, trailer reactions aren't bad. It's just that that's not where my talents are. I'm not good at trailer reactions for various reasons. So I don't do trailer reactions, even though I know I could probably get 100,000 views per video if I did trailer reactions. But I'm not good at it. So I'm going to do the things that I think I'm good at, and I'm going to try to avoid the things that I'm not so good at. Uh, It's just, uh, you know, try to put myself in the best position that I can to succeed. Anyway, thanks for that, BK. Next up, Willow writes, The first time I saw Hamilton on Disney+, Plus, I enjoyed it, but also thought it was overrated. Then earlier this month, I listened to the soundtrack again on YouTube, and now I'm hooked. What are some of your favorite songs other than the King George number? The King George number is one of my favorite. I mean, all of my favorite live musical stuff is from Les Mis. Les Mis is the greatest, I think, the greatest live show ever made. Uh, But yeah, the King George song, that's one of my all-time favorites. I'll kill all your friends and family. To remind you of my love. Yeah, da, 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 da. That's, I could sing that song all day. And the guy, but I had the advantage of the first time I saw Hamilton was not on Disney+. Plus. I actually saw Hamilton at the Pantages in Los Angeles with the live production. And it's unbelievable. Um, a couple of my favorite numbers from that are, number one is not going to, uh, not giving away my shot, which is great. Just like my country, I'm young, scrappy, and hungry, and I'm not giving away my shot. I love that song. Um, the uh, the Sisters song, Greatest City in the World. I love the George Washington song about we're going to show them how to say goodbye, which to me is incredibly powerful. Also about, uh, not just about the, the individual of, of Washington, but also about 
the principles of how democracy should work. And him singing a song about showing them grace and how to leave, how to say goodbye, how to walk away from power. Um, I just thought that was powerful and moving. And yeah, so those those are some of my favorites from Hamilton at any rate. Thanks for asking, Willow. Uh, next up, Christian DeHoy writes, Hey, John, love the show. Thank you so much, Christian. What if Ms. Minutes is somehow behind the whole AI gone crazy, a la Skynet? Also, does the fact that there is a Loki seemingly holding Mjolnir mean that Loki can be worthy? Well, I mean, listen, first of all, Ms. Minutes, nah, there's there's no connection to Ms. Minutes. I don't even think we're going to see her for the rest of the series, to be honest with you. Also, here's the thing. We as fans, I'm guilty of this too, we get into the habit of overreaching in, in theorizing on barely any scraps of information. We don't even know what we were looking at. Like in that post credit scene in the last episode of Loki, we don't even know for sure what we were looking at. It was a quick 20 to 30 second clip. We saw the, the Loki variants even less than that. We don't know that that was a, it was a hammer. That's all we know. We don't know that was a Mjolnir. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. We don't even know that that particular person was a Loki variant. We can assume, but right now we don't even know. So, there's just too much in there. There's a million different variables in there. That means it could be not something that we thought we saw. So so I don't know what it was saying. I'm not even going to try to speculate on something that just gave us a quick, brief moment of looking at it. So I'm not going to go there, but we'll find out. We'll find out soon enough. All right. Thanks for writing that in, Christian. Uh, next up, K Major writes, who is the MCU side character goat? Uh, Mobius, Jimmy Woo, Wong, Luis, Darcy, Happy, Ned from Spider-Man, or Coulson. Coulson is still a side character because his Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. doesn't exist in the MCU. Uh, the field is open. Um, well, listen, I love Clark Gregg and Agent Coulson. Um, and I have liked him in the Marvel movies very much. But let's face it, you wouldn't have him on that list if it wasn't for the fact that he also had Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., a show I did not like, but I always liked Clark Gregg. So I, I would say no, Coulson's out. I do love Ned, Jacob Bartolone, uh, who plays Ned. He's great. Uh, Mobius has been awesome so far. Uh, Jimmy Woo, it was so great to see him pop up in WandaVision. Darcy is great. I still want the Darcy and Agent Wu uh, MCU X-Files show. I want that badly. I think that would be great. Happy is like the original MCU side character. But to me, it's got to be Luis. It's got to be Luis. All those side characters are great, but none of them light up the screen as when Michael Pena is on screen as Luis. He lights up the screen. Not even when he's doing his recap stories. Okay, so there's a guy, blah, blah. not even when he's doing that, just everything he does as that character, when Michael Pena is on screen as Luis, he lights up the screen. So I'm going to say, I'm going to go for Luis in that one. That's me. All right, next up, Sam Fisher writes, one of three. Hey, John and Rob. And obviously Rob's not here today. Uh, Billy Boyd, Dominic Monaghan, Pippin and Mary were on uh, Colbert the other day. And he asked them, um, he asked them their thoughts on the Lord of the Rings Amazon show. And if they put stuff like nudity in it, uh, make it more Games of Thrones like. By the way, can I just say, whenever the issue of possible nudity being in Lord of the being in Lord of the Rings, I don't know why everybody rushes to say, oh, they're trying to make it more Game of Thrones like. I, I'm sorry, did I miss something? Was Game of Thrones the first show and only TV show ever to have nudity in it? I mean, obviously not. 
like these HBO shows and things like they have been putting nudity and sex and things like that in their shows forever. I don't know why everybody just goes, oh, it's trying to be Lord of the Rings because of nudity, because of nudity. That show has a guy with a beard. Game of Thrones had a guy with a beard. They're trying to be Game of Thrones. I just don't know why everybody's right. There's been many, 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 many shows. A plethora, even. And a little bit of Three Amigos there for you. A plethora of shows with lots of nudity and lots of sex. Some of the biggest shows ever. I don't know why everybody keeps rushing to Game of Thrones and that. Anyway, um, they told a story that there was almost nudity in Lord of the Rings. And Colbert read an excerpt from the book where they are nude with Tom Bombadil. A character that a lot of people were very upset they didn't put in the movie. But he didn't need to be in the movie. I'm glad they cut him out. Even though I do like him in the book. Anyway. You'll probably say it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Uh, but question for you guys is, what do you think if uh, the Amazon Lord of the Rings show having nudity to make it get more Game of Thrones? Like, okay, look, can we just stop with the Game of Thrones thing? Okay, a lot of shows put in a lot of nudity long before Game of Thrones. Uh, putting in nudity does not make them trying to be Game of Thrones any more than them putting in a guy with a beard. Okay, so just take that out of there. What do I think about them putting in nudity? Same way I feel about nudity in any TV show or, or movie. If there is a scene that feels like this would feel more natural in the flow of the story if there was nudity right now, then do it. And if it doesn't, then don't. Beginning, end, there. That's the that's the end of the statement. I, I feel that's, look, I don't like gratuitous anything. Like, I love filthy. Bring on the filthy. I love the filthy. But I don't like gratuitous anything. I don't like gratuitous swearing. And by gratuitous, I mean, I mean, different people can mean different things by it. For me, it means like it, it was just being forced in there. It doesn't, it didn't naturally fit in with what's going on. That guy just said fuck for the sake of saying fuck just to try to be shocking, but it didn't actually fit in the scene. It doesn't feel like that's what that character would say or whatever. Then I don't like it. Nudity or sex is the same thing to me. I love nudity and sex, but I mean, if it didn't feel like, it's like, okay, they just put it in there for the sake of putting it in there. But if it's in line with the tone of the show, and if there's a narrative going on where it feels like, hey, if this was happening here, these characters would be getting naked, then I'm all for it. Put it on screen. We're all adults. We're big boys and girls. We can deal with it. We can handle that. So to me, it's all about the story. And I, I can't help but laugh at anybody who feigns outrage. Oh, they might have me. Oh, me. Like, I, I just laugh at all this fake outrage over something that they people haven't even seen yet. Right? Now, listen, if we watch a Lord of the Rings show and there's nudity in it and there was absolutely zero narrative sense for them being nudity in there, I'm not going to like the scene. I might still like the show. I might not, but... Uh, then I'm not going to like the scene. It'll feel gratuitous to me. But if it does fit in the narrative, and these are only questions we can answer. So it's only asking, like, you might as well be asking me, John, you know, there's this upcoming, um, I don't know, uh, Dune. Okay, so, so that Denis Villeneuve's Dune coming up. Yeah, they're saying in one of the scenes, a guy's going to wear a purple shirt. What do you think about that? What do you think about a, a scene with, with a guy wearing a purple shirt? I, I I don't know if it seems like it's a character who would wear the color purple, then I'm all for it. I mean, again, nudity is a real thing. Everybody's naked sometimes. And if it makes it into the story because it, because it fits with the story flow, fine. If they just throw it in there, so you know what we haven't had yet? Titties. We haven't had titties yet. Just, just 
have one of the characters waking up for breakfast and the, the barmaid is just walking around with their titties out for no reason whatsoever. Is it supposed to be like a brothel of ill repute where something like that would happen? Nah, it's just like a regular little inn in the middle of town. Well, then that would be stupid. But if they go to like uh, a place that is a place of ill repute in a town because they're trying to stay low and whatever, and if some of the bar wenches, as they call them, walk around with their titties out, okay, that's fine with me too because that fits in the narrative. It all depends on what fits with the narrative and what flows with it. If it works, great. If it doesn't, fine. But we don't know until we start watching the show, so I don't want get why anybody is getting so worked up defending it or getting so worked up with their fake outrage on either side. We haven't seen it yet. So I don't care. I really don't care. If you're going to put nudity in, I'm just going to assume it's for a good reason. If you're going to put swearing in, I'm going to assume it's for the reason of the story and the characters because that's what fit what they do. If you're going to put murders in it, I'm going to assume that's part of the story. So let's just see how it works out. Let's just see how it works out. All right, next up. Um, Jason G writes, Hey, John. In Loki, the connection slash feelings it implied Loki had for Sylvie reminded me of my girlfriend who passed. Oh, I'm sorry to hear about that, man. Um, it always... Felt like we were the boy-girl version of, of the other, so the logic in the show made me laugh and shed a tear at the same time. Uh, in Endgame, uh, Steve seeing Peggy made me shed a tear, as did WandaVision. As a superhero movie geek, it's crazy how bonded to these stories and characters you can become, and how much they can mean as silly as they can be at times. Now, that is one of the benefits of a larger cinematic universe. One of the benefits of a larger cinematic universe is the fact that we spend multiple episodes, multiple movies and multiple uh, experiences with these characters. So we get to know them more. And the more we get to know them, the more we can empathize with them when special moments happen. Like, yeah, that moment that Steve sees Peggy, come on, that was powerful. That was really powerful. Hmm. And maybe it wouldn't have been as powerful if it was, say, a post-credit scene in the first Captain America movie. But we got to spend a lot more time with Steve. We got to see that he never really got connected with anybody else. I mean, he flirted around with his great niece that he never knew was his great niece. You know, there were some people wondering if him and Black Widow would ever get together. That never really happened. But we, so we basically saw him go through all these things without that kind of connection. And then because we always knew he had one true love. And then we got to see her again, and that was a benefit of the larger cinematic universe. We got to spend more time. Same thing with the WandaVision situation and things like that. So, yeah, that is one of the really good special things about that, Jason. Good observation. All right, next up, Thor, but not complaining. I like that username. With Dune, we were just talking about that, just around the corner, are you afraid that people will be comparing it to Star Wars and think it's a ripoff? No. Uh, don't you just hate it when people rag on or make comparisons with something when they don't know the full picture? Thanks. Yeah, I don't. I'm not worried about that at all. But what you talked about does remind me of this. There was an online comic strip that I used to read all the time. This is years and years and years and years ago. It was called PVP, Player versus Player. If you've never read it, you should go look up the old stuff. I, I don't know. I don't even know if they still do it. I have no idea. I haven't read it in many years. I don't know why, because I always loved it. Anyway, there was this great um, episode, this great strip where, you know, the, the, the older geek and the younger geek are having this conversation and they're talking about like uh, Lord of the Rings, the Lord of the Rings movie, right? And the younger geek is like, man, they've got dwarves and elves and wizards and blah, blah. 
Lord of the Rings is just a big Dungeons and Dragons ripoff. Now, of course, the older geek is like, ah, because the older geek knows Dungeons and Dragons or Lord of the Rings came first, <laughs> knows that that came a long time before there was Dungeons and Dragons. But yes, that's a good situation like that. But no, I'm not worried that anybody's going to be making those comparisons with Star Wars or anything like that. I'm not worried about that at all. All right, next up, CC and more rights. One of two. Hey, John. Loki spoilers for episode four. Uh, I'm convinced now the TVA captured Pillboy from Good Place from Jacksonville, Florida in the Good Place to be fish dude. Anyway, uh, based on the post credit, it seems to suggest a pre-existing multiverse. Again, don't read too much into a quick, a quick little post credit scene that gave us no context or information whatsoever. Anyway, do you think it is a possible way to tie in the other Marvel properties like age? No. Uh, like Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., Netflix, or are they too closely associated with the, with Ike Perlmutter for Kevin Feige to incorporate them on some less important capacity? Thanks. Listen, here's the thing. If Kevin Feige wanted to incorporate Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., which the, he's already established is not a part of his MCU, or the Netflix shows, with, which he has also affirmed that's not part of his MCU, he doesn't need a Loki post credit scene to set it up. He can come up with any reason in the world to do it any reason in the world at all to do it if he wanted to. He doesn't need something like that. But no, I think Kevin Feige has been very abundantly clear that anything that was Ike Perlmutter, uh, he's already done several things in the shows that shows that the actual MCU is completely separate from Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. No matter how much Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. acted like it was in the MCU. Oh, listen to us mention Thor and Iron Man. Look, Lady Sif is here and blah, blah. So they did everything in their power to look like they were in the MCU, but the MCU always completely ignored them. Um, and that's just the way Kevin Feige always managed it. So, no, I, I'm not expecting that is what Kevin Feige is doing at all. Now, does that mean sometime in the future Kevin Feige can't change his mind? He's a human being. Of course he can, but I really don't expect it. All right, thanks for that, CC. Next up, Dylan writes, Hey, John, just wondering if you've seen the GQ video of your boy, GSP, that's the great George St. Pierre, breaking down MMA scenes in different movies. I did. I came across that on YouTube. Uh, seems like uh, that's something right up your alley. Love you guys. Yeah, I love George St. Pierre. He's my all-time number one favorite mixed martial artist. He was just an artist in the cage, retired for a bunch of years, came out of retirement to fight the middleweight champion, beat the middleweight champion, became a two-division champion. He, of course, retired as the welterweight champion. He then came out of retirement and won the middleweight championship. There's only a handful of guys to hold belts in two different weight divisions, and he was one of the original ones. Not the very first one to do it, but he was one of the first to do it. Um, and I was dying for him to come out of retirement again and fight Habib Nurmagomedov. Now, Habib was going to win that fight. Make no mistake about it. The, the Eagle was going to win that fight. But to see that fight would have been a dream. Even a George St. Pierre north of 40. It would have been such a dream to see him fight the baddest man on the planet. In lightweight champion Habib Nurmagomedov, who is the... It, I don't care. Any of you... John Bones Jones, give me a break. There, nobody on the planet was anywhere near as good as Habib, uh, Habib Nurmagomedov. Nobody was as good. Like, John Bones Jones, he was really good. Don't get me wrong. He's really good. But, like, he lost fights that judges handed to him. Like, his fight against uh, Dominic Reyes. Dominic Reyes won that fight. Okay, I'm, I'm sorry. Dominic Reyes won that fight. He eked out a couple of split decision wins. I mean, he won. That's the bottom line. But Habib Nurmagomedov 
Never lost a round. He was never in his career in trouble. I mean, there, there are one or two moments if you go really early in his career where he's in trouble once or twice, but he would then finish the fight. He never, very rarely did he go to the scorecards. And when he did go to the scorecards, it was never in question. Like it was usually just pure dominance. Or he would beat a guy to near death or choke them out or doing whatever it is he had to do. He would just wipe them out easily. There's no one came close to Habib. And anybody who suggests John Bones Jones, give me a break. That's a joke. But anyway, so so Habib would have won that fight, but man, I would have liked to have seen that fight. That just would have been a dream. Would have been a dream to see that, that legend in GSP fighting Habib. Would have been great, but uh, never did happen. Never did happen. All right, next up. Uh, Alan Schroederer writes, Hey, John, love the show. Thank you so much, Alan. I appreciate that. You said in the Loki spoiler discussion that if Sif had not been confirmed, that Sif had, has not been confirmed for Thor 11 Thunder. However, Deadline reported that she was in it in December of 2020. Can't wait to see her in it. Yeah, so I had a bunch of people write to me to, to remind me of that. I had completely forgotten about that, to be honest with you. Because I saw Lady Sif show up in Loki. I'm like, oh, man. Now I just want to see her in Love and Thunder so bad. But there's been no mention of her being in it. But no, it turned out she was. As a matter of fact, we even talked about it in December. Well, you know, we cover literally between the main topics and all the questions that come in, we literally talk about 40 to 60 topics a day, every day, five days a week. So I totally forgot about it. Totally forgot about it. So I was very excited to find out that she is going to be in Thor Love and Thunder because I love Jamie Alexander. All right, next up, Mark H. Choi writes, Hey, John, the Loki theory. Uh, they are all variants. Doesn't sit right with me, especially, of course, that's the fact that the TVA is made up of all variants. Uh, doesn't sit right with me, especially when you think of how old the sacred timeline is. Wouldn't many of them realize that a variant who was caught a while back is now working in such and such department? Well, maybe yes, maybe no. We simply don't know how they ran the TVA. It could be every once in a while, all their memories were completely reset, right? Because think about it. When a variant shows up, they have no memory of their past life. They just know I've always been a part of the TVA. That's been programmed into their heads. So what's to say, again, that when that would happen, there was like a baseline reset on everybody in the TVA. I was like, okay, now you have all your memories, but you're going to remember Phil here. Phil has always been a part of our division, and Phil's always going to remember being a part of the division. Um, so that's um, that's what I'm guessing they're going to say. Again, I don't know. We'll find out as there's only two episodes left, but right now that's kind of my operating assumption. That can easily change, but that's my operating assumption right now. Okay, next up, we've got Dangerous D who writes, should Warner Brothers slash DC start their own DC studio just like Marvel? Uh, just like Marvel, you, you the success they have. Let me try this again. Should Warner Brothers slash DC start their own DC studio just like Marvel, you the success they have? Plus one person, plus one person has the final say on has the final say-so, which projects to make, uh, what do you think, keep the filthy rolling. Okay, so number one, it's important to understand that Warner Brothers has a brand new owner. I mean, it's not all signed and finalized yet, but Warner Brothers has a new owner, Discovery. Discovery Plus now owns Warner Brothers. At least they will once all the... Um, once all the uh, technicalities and paperwork and government clearances happen, Discovery Plus is now the new owners of Warner Brothers, and that includes DC. Should they just create their own DC film division? 
I believe they should. I believe they should. But also keep this in mind. Even Marvel doesn't have one guy with final say on everything. A lot of people assume Kevin Feige has untethered, unlimited power when it comes to all things Marvel. He doesn't, and he never did. Now, things are changed. They have new leadership changes going on there. But for this whole time, he's always had to get the sign-off and approval approval of Alan Horn. Now, of course, Alan Horn, who is who was, up until recently, the high lord guru of all things movies at Disney. He was the guy that people at Lucasfilm, Pixar, Disney Animation, Disney Pixar, Pictures, and Marvel all reported to. He was ultimately in charge. He had to approve budgets. He had to approve a lot of things. Now, but of course, like a good leader, he gave them a lot of autonomy. And then he would just, you know, hey, if this is what Kevin wants to do, I'll give the check mark. So what they need to do, I think, is create their own division. I think they need to give DC its own film division, but even then that will still be with, let's say they make it Kevin Sujahara, not Kevin Sujahara, I'm sorry. Um, why am I freezing on uh, Walter Hamada? Sorry, Kevin Sujahara was the former CEO of Disney or of Warner Brothers. That didn't work out so well. But Walter Hamada, let's say for argument's sake, it's Walter Hamada. Even then, Walter Hamada is still going to have to answer to somebody, right? But I think it would give them more autonomy. I think it would give them a little bit more creative freedom. Um, I think it could be a good move, but let, let's see how the, and by the way, the CEO of discovery, and I, I can't remember his name right now, but that is how he's known to run things. He sets people in charge of the individual branches of discovery, whether it's TLC or HGTV or the food network or whatever. And he gives them a lot of autonomy to run those divisions. So I got to assume it would be the same thing, but We'll see if they want to keep Warner Brothers as just one package or if they want to split off Warner Brothers as one thing and DC as another thing. We'll see how it goes. Whatever way they decide to do it, I'm sure they're going to make it work. All right, next up, we've got Luis Maya who writes, and he tips in like $20. Thank you, Luis, for tipping in that much and supporting our channel. I appreciate that very much, man. Um, hello, John. I love the idea that animals could also be variants. Well, we see a uh, croaky, the crocodile Loki. Also, I believe Sylvie was arrested that late in childhood because she probably uh, chose to join the Valkyrie around that time and Lokis were destined to become villains. Well, the here's the thing. The problem is deeper than that. Because again, if the main, and I've made this point before, but if the main timeline the sacred timeline loki is the tom hiddleston loki then the very fact that sylvie was born female should have been the variation immediately that's the variance because if tom hiddleston loki is the sacred timeline loki then the very fact that this loki was born female should have been the red flag immediately and yes Maybe there came a point that young Sylvie chose that she was going to be a hero and she was going to stand up for people and she was going to be, you know, help the helpless and all that kind of stuff. That would be a variance also. But again, it has to address how come it wasn't a variance the moment she was born female. Now, maybe she was male and just decided because she is Loki to just become female at some point, and maybe that's what triggered the variant. I mean, I don't know. Still a lot of questions to answer about that. That could be one of the solutions. But again, even if that is what they're going to say in the show, they need to address the fact that she's female at all 
because that in and of itself would be a variance from the Tom Hiddleston Loki. We'll see where they go with it, Luis. We'll see where they go. And thanks again, man, for, for tipping in like that and supporting our channel on that level. We really appreciate it. Okay, next up. All film is subjective. Truth. Writes in and tips in like $25. Thank you, man, for supporting our channel at that level. And all film is subjective, writes in. John, you once did a brilliant video about greatest trilogies and put Star Wars just ahead of Lord of the Rings. Yes. Uh, but what would you say was the greatest cinematic achievement in terms of beauty, awards, legacy? Uh, what would you have preferred to have directed? Easy, Star Wars. Why? Listen, as, as big as Lord of the Rings is, and it's amazing, and I love Lord of the Rings. Love it, love it, love it, love it, love it. Nothing, not the MCU, not the DCU, not James Bond, not Lord of the Rings, nothing has made the cultural impact that Star Wars has and has for over 40 years. I mean, nothing has come close to that. It, it, it's so saturated in our culture and in pop culture itself is Star Wars. So, I mean, obviously I'm a big Star Wars guy, but I mean, look, I, 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 again, Lord of the Rings doesn't come close. James Bond doesn't come close. Star Trek doesn't come close. The MCU has not come close. The fact is that those like three movies are still revered, talked about, quoted. People who have never seen those movies can quote a lot of those movies, even if they'd never seen them. Can you say that about Iron Man 2 40 years from now? No way. No way. Can you even say that about what I think is the greatest comic book movie of all time, the first Avengers movie? Do you think 40 years, well, now 30, close to 30 years from now, people can just quote it like that? No way. Not the same way that they did with the original three Star Wars movies. Not a chance. So, to me, yeah, if I could say I directed any of them, first of all, I'm never be talented enough in my life to direct any of those movies, but... If I did, I, I would go Star Wars for, for that reason and those reasons alone. That's that's my take on it at any rate. Thanks for the question, man. All right, next up. Connor M. writes, I still don't think we know why Sylvie is a variant. Uh, I think, well, obviously we don't know because they haven't told us yet. Well, we've got a lot of theories, but technically speaking, the show hasn't told us yet, and I'm sure they will pretty soon. Anyway, I think in the next couple of episodes, they will explain, well, they better because there's only two episodes left. I think it's going to be a big plot point. I don't disagree. Whether it's because... Again, the, the being born female, the choice to be heroic, a lot of other things people saying, I completely agree, Connor. It's going to be a major plot point. Uh, and again, there's only got two episodes left, so they better do it fast. All right, thanks for that, Connor. Next up, Alex Detman writes, Hey, John, a little Christopher Nolan Batman trilogy fun fact. Did you know originally before Ledger's death, the villains in the final film were Adrian Brody as Riddler and Philip Seymour Hoffman as the Penguin and my imagination went wild? That is actually not true. That's actually not true. Um, there was a rumor that went around, and, and even at one point, Michael Caine himself, Michael Caine actually parroted it, only it wasn't, um, he didn't say Adrian Brody, Academy Award winner Adrian, Adrian Brody. Uh, he said Jim, not Jim Carrey, he said Johnny Depp was going to be Riddler and Philip Seymour Hoffman was going to be uh, Penguin. And so, because Michael Caine said that too, the well, the rumors that started before Michael Caine said it, he parroted it, and then it just ran wild. 
Turns out it was never true. Philip Seymour Hoffman was being interviewed sometime after that, and he just put that to rest. He goes, no, that's just simply not true. I was never even spoken to it about it. Never once in in all my life was that ever even remotely true. So that was never the case. But there are still people today who believe that was the case, but it was not. Uh, At least according to Philip Seymour Hoffman himself, that was never the case. All right, next up. Uh, Handsome Jabba writes, Hey, John, big fan of your show. Thank you so much. Two things. TVA captured Loki and Sylvie because they didn't know they weren't able to escape the Doom planet. Well, I brought that up myself the other day, so yes. Second, Loki is gender fluid based on his file, so Sylvie's variants could still be due to something else she did. It could be. Again, they have to explain that, though. They're going to have to explain that. Because technically speaking, if she was born female, that's it. That variance. However, maybe she was born male, but being Loki has the ability to say, hey, I'm going to be female and became female. That's fine. That's fine. But you still got to at least address that and, and we'll see where we'll see where it gonna, it's going to lead us. All right. Alex Detman writes in and tips in like $20. Thank you, Alex, for supporting our channel that level, man. Um, Alex writes, have you ever played Who Do They Look Like? Uh, I, I was thinking, what if every week we have one of our members send in a pick and you make your pick on the member who the member looks like in a five minute segment and we will chime in the live chat uh, to have fun as a community. I don't I'm not going to be lying. I'm not going to lie, Alex. I don't think that sounds fun at all. And I don't think my audience I don't think my audience would want us wasting time doing that and has nothing to do with the the topical nature of my show. That's not what my show's about. So, yeah, I feel, I mean, I never like to say never, but I feel pretty good in saying that's never something I'll do. That that doesn't seem like, that doesn't fit my show. I honestly don't, I think uh, that would become a part of my show that my audience would regularly fast forward through. You know what it reminds me of? I, I used to have some people write in and say, going all the way back to the AMC days, but I still do today. Every couple of months, I'll get somebody write in to suggest this. Say, you should have like a random, one of the fans. You should have one of the viewers on as a guest on the show, you know, like just, uh, you know, uh, one, one episode, you know, Eddie from Iowa will be the guest on the show. And then next week, uh, you know, Carol from Seattle will, will be the guest on the show. Yeah. The fans would really love that. And my thing was always, no, the fans would hate it. The fans would hate it. The fans who got to be on the show would love it. But it's kind of the same reason why I remember hearing this came up. I described this before. It's like the idea of an ESPN show. ESPN aren't going to bring on random fans because that's not who people tune in to see, right? They tune in to see the hosts of their show. Otherwise, they would go to some other channel. So while I always always said it would be super fun for the people who got to be on the show— it would not be fun. The audience wouldn't like it. The audience wouldn't wouldn't uh, watch. They would tune out because these random people that they don't know, never met, don't care about, it's not what they're going to want to watch for. So, and if that wasn't the case, then, you know, for, you know, one of my favorite sports shows, pardon the interruption, with Will Bond and Kornheiser, you wouldn't need to pay those guys the money they get made. Just have a random fan sit in one of their chairs. But obviously they can't do that. So no, I 
I do not think uh, playing a game, Alex, and I love the ingenuity and I love you trying to come up with new ways to add new things to my show. I'm always looking for those myself, but no, I don't think playing a, a completely unassociated, disconnected game of who do they look like would be something that my audience would like, to, to be honest with you. I, I just don't think it would work. But anyway, thank you for the suggestion and don't be deterred from sending in other suggestions if you have them because, hey, we, we all come up with... 10 bad ideas before we come up with a good idea, right? So if you got more ideas, I'd love to hear them. All right, next up, CP3 writes, Chris Paul is finally making his NBA Finals appearance after 16 years in the league and being celebrated as one of the best players in the world for that long as well. Uh, happy for the Suns. Are they your pick to win the championship, John? Well, right now they are, but I'm not going to lie. The beginning of this NBA season, hell, even the beginning of the playoffs, I never would have guessed that the finals were going to be the Bucks versus the Suns. Never would have guessed it. Anybody who says they did, unless they've got video evidence that they made that prediction before the playoffs started, they're lying. I don't think... Actually, Ann and I just had dinner tonight with our friends Matt and Jay Lynn and Ryan, and we were talking about that. It's like, man, if I could go back in time and put every dollar that I had at a sports book on the NBA finals this year are going to be Milwaukee Bucks versus the Phoenix Suns. I would be a rich, rich man today, my friends, but I'm super happy for Chris Paul. So right now, even though it wasn't my pick earlier, I'm picking the Suns to win in six. Suns to win in six, but who knows? We'll see. My picking is usually pretty good. This NBA playoffs, I've been off. I think I guess like Three playoff series out of the, what, 16 that I've had? I can't even lost count. I've gotten almost all of them wrong this year. <laughs> and I I had a really great record last year and the year before that. But this year, my, my picks have gone, like, way off the rails. I've been so wrong about so many of them this year. But I'm super happy for Chris Paul. All right, next up. Uh, Tony Variant writes, where are we at? In Loki, getting pruned uh, sparks like a sling ring but uses rainbow bridge colors. Well, sort of yes, sort of no. Anyway, MCU's had lots of traveling, but the colors are different for Aquaman, warp speed, etc. Um, sorry, I, I misread that. MCU has had lots of traveling, but the colors are different for quantum, warp speed, etc. Are the sticks as guardian? Maybe not the TVA, but I think those are your thoughts. I'm not, I'll be honest with you, Tony. I'm not really sure what it is you're talking about. So are you asking, are the sticks as guardian technology and they're using, you know, um, um, what, what am I trying to say here? Are you trying to say that they're using the same space travel technology as the Asgardians do, like with the Rainbow Bridge and stuff like that? If so, no, I don't think so. I don't think so. Now, I could be totally wrong, but my initial thoughts on that, uh, like they, they can just summon, they can activate a Bifrost? I don't think so, because that's not even Asgardian technology. Like only the Rainbow Bridge can do the Bifrost. And up until that, the only other thing that could do it after that is Stormbreaker can summon a Bifrost. So I'm going to guess no for now, but let's see what they say moving forward because maybe they'll say it is, but right now, Tony, my guess is it's not. All right, Joey Blue writes, after the latest episode, or the latest Loki episode, I have a theory 
uh, for Spider-Man No Way Home. What if Doc Ock and Electro are variants from timelines in which they defeated slash killed their Spider-Men? The TVA could have taken them in and pruned them into this other world Loki is. I'm going to say no to that for two reasons. The first reason, Joey, is because that would be doing something that Kevin Feige never does. It means you can only watch the next Spider-Man and understand it if you also watch the Loki show. And Kevin Feige has always been very, very careful that that's never the case. I mean, maybe you miss some nuance and maybe whatever, but he's made all of his MCU stuff that you could sit down and watch it and you would not be lost. And doing something like that extreme would require that somebody have Disney Plus and watch the Loki show in order to be able to watch the next Spider-Man. And that's just something Kevin Feige's never done. But more importantly, the second reason I'm going to say that's not what they're doing is Alfred Molina did an interview about being, and we talked about it on the show, Alfred Molina did an interview about the fact that he was going to be playing Doc Ock. And he talked about when the director came to him and first pitched him the idea. He said, no, no, no. This is going to be your Doc Ock right from that last moment that he's in the last Spider-Man movie. So he's not a variant. It's just that he's going to be, we're probably going to see that moment again, right where he's under the river in that last moment in Spider-Man 2. But then we're probably going to see some kind of a portal, kind of like maybe in Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Some kind of portal will pull him through. And he says, at least according to Molina, that he is playing that Doc Ock from the last second he was in that movie and he's going to be brought in here. So when you combine those two things, I don't think that's what they're going to do. But I am very curious, Joey. I am very, very curious to see how they're going to handle this overall. All right, next up, we've got Scott Brown who writes, the trailer just dropped for Clifford the Big Red Dog. We talked about this the other day, and it looks absolutely awful. I don't understand why everything has to be live action. Why wouldn't you just try to make a really good animated movie in the same art style as the books love the show? Well, first of all, I didn't didn't think it looked terrible. I'm going to be honest. I didn't think it looked terrible. I also didn't think anything in it particularly inspired me to want to rush out and see it, but I didn't think it looked terrible. But The idea of this is because you're trying something new that this character has never been done this way before. And look, I'm going to tell you right now, if they just made a traditional animated Clifford the Big Red Dog, nobody's going to go see it. Sorry. I I mean, I might be wrong. We'll never know. But my guess is it really wouldn't get a lot of attention. But to take that story that a lot of people have read since childhood or this character we've read about since childhood and bring it to life in a live action environment is something that's never been done with that character. So I, yeah, I'll be honest with you. I, I totally get it. And if the trailer didn't look good to you, if it was the same trailer in traditional animation, it still wouldn't be a good trailer. Right. If you're saying you just didn't like the trailer because it was live action, but if it was the exact same thing in animated form, well, look, the story's the story. It is what it is. But uh, so listen, while I was not particularly inspired by the trailer, I didn't think it was all that bad, but I can totally see why they're doing it this way because it's different and never been done before with this particular character. And it's a way to bring it to life in a way that maybe you imagined as people were reading it when they were younger. So, and if they just did it in the same animation or the same art style as the books, no one's going to go see it. I, I'm sorry, but that's just the way it is as far as I'm concerned. We may never know for sure. I could be wrong, but as far as I'm concerned, I don't think anybody would see it. All right, next up. Roll of the Egg writes, Hey, John and Co., the YouTube channel Ty and That Guy features Ty Frank and actor Wes Chatham, who is, of course, in uh, The Expanse. 
uh, talking about The Expanse. They cover one episode per week, currently on episode two or on season two, episode eight, and we'll go through season five. Sometimes they have guest stars. Love your show. Let the filthy come forth. And yeah, that's the new thing, right? Is a lot of times characters and actors from certain shows will do their own kind of commentary videos on YouTube or their own kind of after show things on YouTube. And I really do like Wes Chatham, uh, uh, if that's how you say his name, Chatham, in that show. He's one of my favorite characters in it. And he's evolved a lot from episode one where he's just kind of a grunt to when you come up into this last episode he was in where they're getting more into his backstory and stuff. I think it's really good. So that might be something to check out if you're a big fan of The Expanse. All right, next up, Alan writes, Hey, John, I recently saw a trailer for Clifford the Big Red Dog, uh, and it was intriguing at the very least. Have you seen it? And if Aaron is there, what does she think? And obviously Aaron's not here today, nor is Rob. Uh, again, my thoughts were, I didn't hate it. I thought it looked cute. But I, look, again, the job of a trailer is to take your anticipation level, no matter how high it is and no matter how low it is, and bump it up a couple of notches. And I'd be lying to you if I told you that this trailer did that for me. It didn't. I di it didn't make me any less interested in seeing it, but it didn't make me any more interested in seeing it either. But who knows? Like, it's just a trailer. Maybe the movie will be really charming. All right, next up, Emad writes, Hello, Mr. Campia. Thank you for your content and hard work. Well, thank you for being here, man. I appreciate that. I watch every day and enjoy your videos very much. Oh, Emad, thank you so much, man. It's always cool when people want to write in just to say something nice and encouraging. I appreciate that, and it's not lost on me, and I hope it's not lost on you that it's also... A part of us being able to do what we do is because of folks like you being here to watch and participate like this. So thank you so much for that, Emad. I appreciate it, man. All right, next up. Never lose your nerd rights. For a guy that has never been a big fan of the Loki character and actually cheered when Thanos snapped his neck, this last episode had me cheering for him and Sylvie and fearing for their lives and hoping they wouldn't die. Damn you, Marvel. Great episode. And, it, like, listen, I, I honestly don't know how Kevin Feige and... His his team at Marvel do it. I really don't. I don't know how they do it and do it so consistently on, on such a high level. And they and it's all like none of them are the same. WandaVision is completely different than Falcon the Winter Soldier. Falcon the Winter Soldier is completely different from the Loki show. And they have been all been very different from their movie variants. <laughs> no pun intended. Um, it is just crazy what they've been able to do. Never lose your nerd. Now, here's hoping they've got two episodes left. Two episodes less. Let's hope they stick the landing on these uh, because this will be another big winner for them if they do. Another big, big winner for them if they do. Thanks for writing that in. All right, next up. Uh, Joe Big Happy Dorme. And guys, please don't write in in all caps. That does, it makes it irritating to look at. So anyway, uh, hey, John, I was uh, thinking why movies like American Me, Blood In, Blood Out, Boulevard Nights don't get recognized in Hollywood. Oh, well, let's get back to that in a second. I know they're gangster movies, but even movies like The Godfather and Goodfellas, they get recognized in Hollywood. Thanks, and bring on the filthy. Well, okay, so the first question I got to ask, uh, Joe, is what is, when you say don't get recognized in Hollywood, what are you talking about? Like, does Hollywood put out a newsletter every week and say, this week, ladies and gentlemen, we, the Hollywood would like to recognize the following movies. Like, what do you mean by they don't get recognized in Hollywood? What does that mean? And who is Hollywood? Who's who's this Hollywood you speak of? And what do they need to do to recognize it? Now, if you mean the audience, 
Well, I think the audience doesn't recognize them because they're not all that good. Um, Blood In, Blood Out, if I'm thinking of the right movie, if, if that's the one with Benjamin Bratt, it's all right, but it's 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 not that good. Um, the other one you mentioned, what's the other one you mentioned? Boulevard Nights. I have to admit, I'm not familiar with the movie. Not familiar with it. So why do I, as an audience person, not recognize a movie very much? Well, I don't even know what movie that is. So there is that. Um, the last one, American Me, I'm assuming you're talking about the one with Admiral Adama himself, Edward James Olmos. Nice little movie, but it's a, it's a nice little movie. Yeah, people recognize Godfather and Goodfellas because these are all-time great movies. Blood In, Blood Out, uh, American Me. I can't speak for Boulevard Nights because I've never seen Boulevard Nights. But they don't get talked about by the audience nearly as much. Again, I, I don't know what you mean by why doesn't Hollywood recognize? I don't know what that means. But why doesn't the audience recognize? Well, because they're not as good. I mean, just because they're gangster movies like Goodfellas and Godfather does not mean in they're, they're on the same level as Godfather and Goodfellas. So, I mean, if you appreciate those movies more than most people, awesome. I've got a bunch of movies like that, too, that not a lot of people recognize, but I completely passionately love. And maybe these movies are those for you as well. But you got to recognize that the audience doesn't, in general, doesn't think they're on the same level, and I don't either, of films like all-time greats like Goodfellas and Godfather. So that's kind of my take on that. All right, next up, we've got James Argenta who writes, Tinfoil hat theory. The Flash movie will feature a cameo by Grant Gustin Flash. Well, that's a very popular theory. Most people are assuming that's going to happen. Uh, possibly uh, Benoist 2 with Supergirl in the movie. That I doubt. Anyway, when Ezra somehow ends up in Arrowverse, more likely the spoiler character with Keaton and Ezra could be a Robin Damien maybe. I doubt it. I doubt it. I don't think the audience cares that much about Robin, to be honest with you. So I don't, I'm not guessing that's it. I also do not think the Benoist Supergirl character is going to show up. The Grant Gustin Flash one, that's an obvious one because, you know, Ezra Miller popped up in the TV show Flash. It only kind of makes sense if you're going to do a Flashpoint kind of story that at some point, even just like if it's for a moment, just like Ezra did in the Flash show, that crack goes apart. Now, I'm not saying we know that that's going to happen. We don't. But uh, most people, including me, are just kind of assuming that Grant Gustin will make a very short appearance in it. Whether that's true or not, we'll find out soon enough. But but it's going to be fun. But no, do I think that hidden figure in those images is Robin? I don't think so. I don't know that it's not. I, I haven't had any insider tell me that it is or is not. So I may be right or may be wrong. I'm just speculating as a fan, just like anybody else. But my guess as a fan is that it's not Robin. I don't think that makes much sense. All right, next up. Uh, Al Ilocator writes, I recently watched uh, Life of a King starring C Cuba Gooding Jr. Man, he is underrated as an actor. Uh, well, he's got an Academy Award, so I'm not sure he's that underrated. Anyway, setting aside all of his personal problems, he's been in some hard-hitting movies, A Few Good Men, Pearl Harbor, Radio, and My Guilty Pleasure, Rat Race. And you are leaving out the movie he actually won an Academy Award for, which is Jerry Maguire. Show me the money, right? Um, 
honestly, I have come personally to the belief that he's a very good actor, but not a great actor. You know, there are some actors, let's say Kathy Bates, right? Who wins an Academy Award. And this then just shows in performance after performance after performance after performance that that's just her level. She's just that good. And it wasn't just like that perfect moment where she did her best work ever in her life in Misery, which she won an Academy Award for. But she was never able to quite achieve that level again. She's always on that level. And she's been nominated other times for awards. Cuba Gooding Jr., I think showed he had the potential, like his highest high point, he's great. In Jerry Maguire, he won an Academy Award for a reason. He was great in that. He was also very good in a lot of the other, I love Rat Race. It's a race. It's it's seriously one of my guilty pleasure movies. I love Rat Race. Uh, and obviously he had a smaller role in A Few Good Men and some other things like that. But he never showed me, as a random audience person, that he could ever be as good again as he was in Jerry Maguire. He's never showed me that he can be that good consistently. So, yeah, I I like Cuba Gooding Jr. very much. Um, I wish he appeared in more things, but do I think he is a great? No, I think he's good. I think he's very good, but... That level of greatness that he showed, unlike, say, Kathy Bates, who, you know, they each showed a level of greatness in their award-winning performances, but then Kathy Bates just stayed at that level, and then the rest of Cuba Gooding Jr.'s performances were all good, but never close to that peak that he had. So, anyway, that's just kind of my take. Just as a random, just as a random movie fan, just as a random movie fan, that's kind of my perception on that. But I do consider myself a Cuba Gooding Jr. fan. His work in Jerry Maguire was unbelievable. One of the great supporting performances of all time. And certainly one of the great Oscar acceptance moments of all time was him winning that Academy Award. It was absolutely fantastic. All right, next up. Uh, Alokinator also writes, also... I think I enjoyed F9 more because my expectations were low. After hearing you and Rob talk about it, I went in there expecting a live-action cartoon. It wasn't great, but it did the job, and the soldiers have the aim of a storm stormtrooper. It's worse than Stormtrooper, man. It's worse. But again, that's my take on the movie. The only thing that matters is when you go into the theater, because movies are experiential events, what experience did you get out of it? And if your experience was a good one, don't worry about what everybody else thinks. All that matters is what was your experience. And if you had a good time, then that's great. That's great. All right. Thanks for sharing that, man. All right. Next up, DJ Tater Skins writes, John, thoughts. The Last Jedi. Any redeeming qualities you saw? I'm not going to lie. I like The Last Jedi. I think The Last Jedi is good. Now, I, I have my issues with it. I think there are some things that I had some real issues with. But overall, I like The Last Jedi. Uh, anyway, uh, I say it's a... I say it's a great movie. Doesn't fit all the corners of the trilogy. I needed Han and Luke interaction, but astral projection fight and Yoda teaching Luke. See you around, kid. Yeah, listen, I think Last Jedi is a good movie. I stand by that. It is a very divisive movie, though. There's no doubt it is a very divisive film. Now, I thought The Phantom Menace... Uh, sorry, I keep saying The Phantom Menace. I thought The Force Awakens was fantastic. I love The Force Awakens. 
It is my favorite Star Wars movie other than the original trilogy. So Star Wars, Empire, Return of the Jedi, untouchable. But honestly, my next favorite Star Wars movie after that is The Force Awakens. I think it's fantastic. I do not like The Last Jedi on that level. Um, but again, I think it worked. I really liked, like, I often hear people whine about Luke in that movie, and that's fine. We all have our different perceptions of things. But I sometimes wonder, the people complaining about Luke in that movie, do they actually know the original Star Wars? Like, did they ever actually watch the original Star Wars? Do they understand this character? Because to me, how Luke, where we find Luke and how Luke was um, conducting himself as a character in relation to what we know about the character and the circumstances he found himself in, I thought was very consistent. And whenever I hear people trying to make arguments against it, I just sit there and scratch my head and going, have you ever actually watched Star Wars? But anyway, that's just kind of my take. It's all subjective. It's all fine. But there were actual really big moments about the film that I did not like. The whole casino planet thing was a joke. Like, and not just that there's a casino planet. I mean, everything that happened there was preposterous. Like, just utterly preposterous. The Benicio del Toro character was a complete waste. Like, it's just a complete, utter waste. Right? I just, they, the, 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 the whole side mission that Finn found himself on was ridiculous. Now, granted, there were a lot of things I liked about the movie as well, and overall, I enjoy The Last Jedi. I think The Last Jedi is quite good. But, I mean, then it went into The, <laughs> the Rise of Skywalker, which I personally think is horrible. If you like The Rise of Skywalker, awesome. I thought The Rise of Skywalker was terrible. But yeah, it's funny how, listen, the lack of a plan really began to show in the new trilogy. The fact that they did not start off with a plan about here is where our three films are going to go. They just decided to wing it. So you had The Force Awakens, who I thought was great. You had The Last Jedi come down, but I still thought it was good. And then you had The Rise of Skywalker. It just went on this downward trajectory right from the beginning. Um, and that was, I completely attribute it to lack of, a, of planning. So that's kind of my take on DJ. All right, next up, we got Major Tom who writes, Hey, John. I use a one to 10 system when I review movies. That's most people do. Almost everybody does. I do not at any rate. Um, but it's there more for me than anyone else. I always put the score at the end of my review. So people will read it by the way, that doesn't work. People know if all they're looking for is a score, people know just to skip to the bottom. So putting your review number at the bottom does not trick people into reading it. Believe me, it doesn't work anyway. Uh, I always put the, the score at the end of my review so people read it, but I kept it there to remind me of how I initially felt about the movie. Here's the thing. A number doesn't tell you how you felt about the movie. Your review tells you how you felt about the movie. Anyway, uh, decided to read uh, the movie in case I decide to revisit the film later on down the road, which happens periodically. Sometimes I change my, my opinion changes, sometimes not. I use a scoring system to keep track of how I felt about movies in the event my opinion does change. Again, to me, putting a number at the end doesn't actually tell you how you felt about the movie. You talking about the movie tells you how you felt about the movie. Like if you gave a movie an eight and then later on decide it's a seven, that doesn't actually tell you anything. Did What is it that changed? Did you feel that the subplot of the side characters was better than it was before? Did you feel that the, the portrayal of our main antagonist was worse than you initially thought? 
Did you think that the main storyline was more engaging than you originally gave it credit for? Did you think the use of humor in it maybe didn't hit as well as you did, as you thought maybe the first time you saw it? I mean, a number at the end of your review doesn't tell you any of those things. It doesn't tell you anything. And again, the, the bigger problem with the average film fan is everybody has different meanings to numbers. So you can say something's a 7 out of 10 that that might mean something completely different to you than it does to another person. Anyway, again, I'm not trying to dissuade you from using a numerical system. That's what everybody does. So I'm not trying to dissuade you from doing that. I'm just saying a number at the end of a review does not tell you how you feel about a film. And even if that number changes, it doesn't tell you anything about why it changed. You know, that's why I think your words are your review, not the number you give it at the end. But that's just that's just my take on it. That's just my personal take on it, Major Tom. You do you. Whatever works for you, that's what you should do. I'm just explaining why it doesn't work for me, but that's all. All right, thanks for that, Major Tom. Next up, uh, an anonymous viewer writes, Hey, John, when you first started doing movie news, what got you in the zone? Any tips picked up to improve your craft? Big fans stay awesome. I'll tell you one thing. It doesn't matter if you're doing phone reviews, laptop reviews, sneaker reviews, food reviews, whatever it is you like to talk about in your blog, podcast, or YouTube channel. The one bit of advice and direction I would always give people when they would start working with me, especially if they were on camera talent, is this. I know it feels weird, and I know it feels awkward, but when you record a show, when you do a show, Go and watch it two or three times. Go and watch it two or three times. And listen or watch yourself from the perspective of a viewer. I have done that for 15 years. Whether it meant rereading articles that I wrote, re-listening to podcasts that I did, or re-watching YouTube videos I do. Every time I do a podcast, a video, write an article, from time to time I still do that, I will go back and rewatch, re-listen, or reread it from the perspective of a fan. And you get to pick up on your own, um, your own quirks, the things you do that work, the things you do that don't work, whatever. And too many people say, no, I never listen to myself or watch my own videos because I feel awkward. Okay, but then you're probably not going to improve as quickly or as much as you could if you do go back and review your own work. And that's my the number one piece of advice that I give anybody in content creation. Anyway, I hope that helps, Anonymous. All right, next up. Uh, Frankie W. Gouge writes, The reason I use a Fire Stick, an Amazon Fire Stick, number one, like you said, they're faster. Number two, when I search uh, on a Fire Stick, it searches every service, tells me what to subscribe to, watch it for free or where it's free. Three, integrates with my all my Amazon content better. So Frankie, I agree. Now what Frankie is talking about is the other day somebody wrote in a question and said, hey, John, you're always talking about Roku and Amazon Fire Stick. Most TVs these days come with smart TV functions and they're all in there. And I said, yeah, but... All, all the TVs I own in my house, this one right here, the one in my living room, the one in my bedroom, and the one that we use in my backyard, all of them are smart TVs, but all of them, I have either a Google Chromecast or Roku hooked up to it, except for the one in my backyard, which already has, it's 
it's got Roku built into it. Like a Roku is built into the TV, like a full Roku service. So that's a little bit different. But other than that, all of them, I have something hooked up because number one, they all function much faster and much smoother. Number two, they all have vastly superior user interfaces. Like much, 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 much better user interface experience. Number three, they they have much wider selection of apps and things like that to include on. Now, look, the smart TVs will all have the main apps. They'll all have Netflix. They'll all have YouTube. They'll all have Hulu. But listen, my my living room TV, I got 30 or 40 different apps, and I watch all of them. And not all of them, actually a lot of them, you're not going to find on a smart TV. Also, an Amazon Fire Stick and a Roku or an Apple TV or a Google Chromecast will have a much bigger potential library of other apps you can install and things like that. Anyway, all those things means the, the, the experience using an actual dedicated streaming device as opposed to a generic built-in function on a TV, again, unless that TV has Amazon Fire Stick built in or a Roku built in, you're going to find is a much superior experience. And I agree with you, Frankie. Those are just a couple of very, very good reasons you just listed. So I'm with you 100% on that, brother. All right, next up, Bojax writes, Hey, John. So I'm about four episodes into Gangs of London and the same for Warrior. As far as which has the best fight scenes, I'm still undecided. Oh, I'm not, not in the least. However, I do find the scenes in Gangs more visceral and brutal. Have you watched both and what are your thoughts? Yeah, I am also about four episodes into Gangs of London. Uh, I started watching it because after I finally started watching Warrior on HBO, I binged all two seasons in three days. Got through all two seasons, both seasons of Warrior in three days. Couldn't stop watching it. A bunch of people suggest I also try watching Gangs of London. And it's good. I'm liking it. It's To me, it's nowhere near as good as Warrior. Like I, I don't feel this impulsive need that I cannot stop watching. I have to watch the next episode right now. I'm enjoying it. I'm liking it. It gets a thumbs up from me, but I'm not liking it on a visceral level like I did with Gangs of, or like I did with uh, Warrior. Uh, Warrior to me was just a better experience. As far as the action scenes, to me, there's no question. Warrior's action is far superior to Gangs of London, in my opinion. And yet, look, there's some very brutal, visceral violence in Gangs of London, like that one fight in particular between the dude when he goes in the abandoned apartment and he finds that, that uh, with a kid who's tied up and the butcher dude cutting up the other body and gets in this big fight with the butcher dude and all. That's a brutal, brutal fight. It is. But the combat in, in Warrior is so top shelf. Like so ridiculously top shelf. To me, like I said, for my personal take, I think the, the action in that is far superior. But hey, it all depends on taste. It all depends on taste. But I am liking uh, Gangs of London quite a bit. But Warrior is just on another level for me. All right, thanks for that, Bojax. Next up, Major Tom writes, Also, as a side note, side note for my 1 to 10 review scale, I only hand out 10 out of 10s for truly exceptional films like The Princess Bride, Empire Strikes Back, or The Godfather. While I don't think movies are ever perfect, those movies come really damn close. Yeah, listen, I even when I did give scores to movies, which I don't do anymore, I think only about six, seven, or eight times in my entire career. I've, I've lost track, but I think it's around six, seven, or eight times in my career that I ever gave anything 10 out of 10s. Those, that was like once, once out of every two or three years, a movie would get a 10 out of 10. Too many people, like, again, we live in a 10 out of 10 or a zero out of 10 society where almost everybody wants to give, they like it, oh, 10 out of 10, 10 out of 10. 
Didn't like it. Zero out of ten. It's a zero. It's a zero. Which, again, is another one of the reasons that I just stopped giving numerical scores to things. But, yeah, I only gave out 10 out of 10s to a very, very small handful of movies. Very, very... And that's the way it should be. I I think 10s should be extremely exclusive. Like, not even one a year should be handed out. But that's just kind of my take on it. Other people hand out 10s like they're candy on Halloween. All right, next up. Uh, Sam Weiser Gamgee writes, Hey, guys. I hate to show my age... But every time you mention Cheetah, I don't think Wonder Woman. I automatically think you're going to talk about the chimpanzee from the Johnny uh, Weismuller Tarzan movies. LOL, bring on the filthy. That's funny. That's even that's predating me, man. That's predating me a bit. But listen, don't laugh. We were just, what were we just talking? I was just talking with somebody about this, that when I hear such and such, I don't even think about that thing. I think about this other thing. What was it we were talking about? Oh, damn it. I was just talking about Anne with something. And now I can't even remember what it was. I can't even remember what it was. But that, that's funny, Sam Weiser. Thanks for sharing that, dude. I appreciate that. Next up, Wes Maurer writes, one of two. Hey, John and Rob. Obviously, Rob's not here right now. Okay, so now we know Michael Keaton is in a lot more of The Flash than we originally thought. Is it possible that the script called for a major Batman role the whole time and that it was simply a matter of which Batman, Keaton or Affleck, jumped on the part first? Considering we haven't really heard very much of Affleck's Batman involvement in the movie, no, I don't think so. I think, listen, they they people underestimate how much time it, they take in creating scripts and then storyboarding a movie and then doing animatics and all this prep work, years sometimes of prep work that goes into a movie before they start rolling the camera. My best guess right now, and it, it is a guess, is that when Michael Keaton started saying, look, I'm not 100% sure right now because of COVID if I'm doing it, my best guess is if for whatever reason... Michael Keaton had to back out of doing it. They simply would have just put another actor in there and not made reference to the um, Tim Burton Batman. And they would have done minor adjustments just to make it a Batman. I don't think it would have been Ben Affleck, though. I don't think Ben Affleck was sitting there wanting to do three months of shooting on a Flash movie as Batman again. I, I don't think that's the case. So I'm kind of guessing they just probably would have made the minor change of change a few lines here and there to say this is an older Batman, but not necessarily the one from the Tim Burton movies. Like obviously, but their plan all along was to make it Michael Keaton. That was the plan. And it wasn't until the COVID thing came up that maybe threw some question marks on it. Uh, but I think they probably had a contingency just in case, just in case. All right. Thanks for writing that in, Wes. All right. Next up, Chuck the Mystery writes, hey, John and Rob, if there, and obviously he's not. I have a question uh, that has been plaguing me for a while, and I'd really like your thoughts. Even though I liked uh, David Ayer's uh, Suicide Squad and Birds of Prey, I was in the minority, but the one thing that most could agree on about those films was a shared love for Margot Robbie as Harley Quinn. Being that the box office for Birds of Prey was disappointing, as well as a critic and fan response for both films being poor, does Gunn's Suicide Squad have to be good box office and fan response in order for the studio to give Margot a future with DC films? Or does that film's success or failure have no effect on her at all? Congratulations on four years of YouTube channel and thanks for the amazing content. And what, of course, Chuck is referring to is last week, marked my four-year anniversary since I decided to leave my job, 
course, I was at Collider, that I decided to leave Collider and branch out on my own and do my own YouTube channel, uh, where I had so many people, including some I worked with, telling me it was absolutely going to fail and I was going to fall on my face and it wouldn't, wouldn't work at all. And here we are four years later. Anyway. This is an interesting situation. Listen, every situation is unique. A lot of times in situations like this, I would say, nah, it doesn't really matter. But this is different, right? Now, look, Margot Robbie as Harley Quinn, like, absolutely dominated pop culture. Like, far more than even the movie itself did. Because everybody, men and women, at Halloween time, they were all dressing up as Margot Robbie's Harley Quinn. People, even people who didn't like, um, didn't like Suicide Squad, and I did like it. It's a hot mess of a movie, but I still had a lot of fun with it. I, I had a good time with Suicide Squad, but even people who didn't, they loved Margot Robbie's Harley Quinn. I mean, she just captured imaginations. Now, unfortunately, Birds of Prey was utter hot garbage. I hated Birds of Prey. And I wanted to like it. Let me just bring something up here. Uh, uh, Rotten Tomatoes. It wasn't all that badly received, actually. Birds of Prey. Horrible title, though. Birds of Prey and the Fabulous Emancipation One Harley Quinn. Always hated the title. But listen, although I contend it was a terrible movie, terrible movie, here's the reality. It had a 79% critic rating. Most of the critics liked it. And these are verified ratings, 78% audience score. So much for the audience score and the critic score are always completely different. Anyway, uh, and remember, these are verified ratings. These are ratings made by fans that Rotten Tomatoes can confirm they actually bought tickets and went to go see the movie. So these aren't just people review bombing positively or negatively. <laughs> so as much as I thought Birds of Prey was terrible, and I do believe it was terrible, Fact of the matter is, a lot of the critics did like it, and a lot of fans did like it. Now, Birds of Prey, um, how it did at the box office is another question altogether. Birds of Prey overall um, only made $201 million at the box office. Not domestically, worldwide. Made $200 million at the box office. I don't know that that movie broke even. After theatrical cut, marketing costs, production costs, I'm not sure it broke even. It might have. If it did, it broke even by the skin of its teeth. Does this Suicide Squad have to do well in order for there to be a future for Margot Robbie's Harley Quinn? Margot Robbie's Harley Quinn. I actually think yes. Now, it doesn't have to be a billion-dollar film. Suicide Squad doesn't have to be a billion-dollar film or anything like outrageous like that, but it's got to be successful. And if it is successful, and if once again, people really love Margot as Harley in it, which they did in the first Suicide Squad, then I think it's a safe bet that we'll get another crack at a Harley Quinn movie, hopefully not this time with Birds of Prey, and extra hopefully it'll be with Poison Ivy. Because I want to see a Harley Poison Ivy romance movie. I want to see that badly. So hopefully that'll work. Generally, we'll just have to wait and see. All right, next up, we've got Christopher Martinez who writes, best show on YouTube. Thank you, Christopher. Where's the missing person? 
Uh, where's the beekeeper? Yeah, we never did really get an answer on the beekeeper on WandaVision, did we? Uh, where's White Vision? I'm Well, that has purposely been left as a mystery. We'll find out soon enough. Are we getting the Falcon Winter Soldier Season 2? I believe that we are. Uh, Ravona Renslayer yelled, protect the timekeepers. Did she know they were robots or not? Can't wait for the, for, uh, the movies to come out. That's a big question that a lot of people have had in Loki after the last episode is like, does she... Oh, look, there, there's three possibilities of Ravona right now. Number one, she's totally in on whatever the, the scam is. Like, she's in on it. She knows that those timekeepers are just puppets and robots, and she's actually fully involved with whoever is behind the curtain on this and working with them to make all these dastardly plans they have. That's option number one. Option number two is she's just somebody who truly believes in the mission of the TVA, Option number three is she totally believes it. She just totally believes that those, she thought those timekeepers were real. So that, now, there are certain things that suggest she believed one thing, certain things that suggest that maybe she's in on it. I think they have not been clear on what the answer on that is. So we'll have to find out. I'm going to guess, pure guess, and I'm changing my guess on this all the time. Right now, today, my guess is she didn't know the timekeepers were fake. Now, I may change my mind by the time the next Loki episode starts, but that's my guess right now. All right, next up, Jason A. writes, Hey, John, I decided to rent Don't Breathe, love Don't Breathe, uh, after you mentioned it the other day, and holy crap, it had me on the edge of my seat from the moment we first see Stephen Lang sit up in bed. It was wall-to-wall tension, and anyone who doesn't consider it horror is nuts. Yeah, I don't understand. Like, horror is not just supernatural. Like I, I honestly don't understand the debate about whether or not um, don't breathe this horror. To me, it's clearly horror. It's clearly horror. But I mean, seriously, over the last couple of years, I have had some real debates with people who insist it is not a horror movie. It's a thriller. Now, look, understandably, the lines between thriller and horror sometimes are a little blurred. Yes, but I, I, I don't know, man. Maybe I'm crazy. But for me, I'm with you. I thought to- Don't Breathe is totally a horror. I think thriller applies to it as well, but I consider it a horror film. And anyway, either however you label it, which isn't really all that important. The important thing is that you liked it and that you had a good time with it. I did too. Thanks for letting me know about that, Jason, because I liked it as well. All right. Mark 2021 writes, Hey, John, I'm not able to submit a super chat on the live spoiler videos. I get error messages. I'm sorry. You should write to YouTube about that. See if they can give you uh, some heads up on that. But what if I know it's silly, but for fun, a variant shows up as Alan Cummings, son of the mask, not because his timeline isn't supposed to exist, but because uh, that movie should not exist. <laughs> as son of the mask should not exist. I see what you're saying. Horrible, uh, but it would be funny if they gave a nod, just as a funny Easter egg from Son of the Mask. Well, first of all, there's no connection between, I mean, obviously the mask was supposed to have been made by Loki. Like, if you go back to the Jim Carrey movie, The Mask, which I love, Cameron Diaz, by the way, was so sexy in that. Anyway, you know, the the whole mythology of The Mask is that was created by Loki. So maybe there's a tie-in. But saying Alan Cummings and Son of the Mask is a variance because that movie was never supposed to happen. Because if you've never, you know, I bet a lot of you have never even heard of Son of the Mask that had Alan Cummings in it. And that's just as well. Because as Mark is kind of alluding to here, that movie is terrible. 
I mean, really, really awful. So no, I don't think they're going to do that at all. That may, That's a little too sticky. So I don't think they're going to do that at all. But I, I like the way your mind's going, Mark, because that's kind of funny. All right, next up, Cody Hunter Films, or Cody Hunt Films writes, one or two, anything that has the ability to make choices can be a variant in the eyes of the TVA. Maybe. They haven't explicitly said that, but it's kind of implied. Uh, so surely actions made by an animal could, uh, could alter the flow of time. Makes me think of the butterfly effect. I just think it would be funny to see a chimp being asked to sign a form to confirm everything he ever said, asked if it was a robot or if it pleaded guilty for crimes against the sacred timeline, all with complete sincerity. Yeah, obviously. So clearly the TVA does not think animals can be variants. Or... Or, I suppose, theoretically, Cody, what they could say is that an animal does make a decision contrary to the timeline to change things up. Then they just go and prune it. They they don't bring it in. They don't have it signed documents. They don't give it a trial. They just prune it. I mean, that's my guess. Because, yes, it is ridiculous for them to do the things you've just suggested. So I agree with that. It would be silly. So that's kind of my guess. All right, next up. Uh, BJW writes... Could the reason why Fast 9 is not received too well by viewers is because uh, Neil Moretz no longer being involved in the series? I heard that he was removed from the series because he wanted lead producer credit on Hobbs and Shaw. Okay, so if you guys want a really interesting read about, you know, inside baseball Hollywood and how some feature films work and sometimes how a producer is doesn't do things, go online and re read about the story about Neil Moretz. It's interesting stuff. Here's the thing, though. I don't think that had anything to do with Fast 9 because really, I don't really think he was ever involved all that much. You know, the reality of the situation is that from a, a creative point of view, my understanding was he was never actually all that involved in it anyway. So, no, I, I really don't think that has anything to do with it. I think the very fact, the fact that, is that the F9 was the first one, I think it was Chris Morgan. I might be saying the name, I might be saying the wrong name, but like Morgan was the screenwriter for a lot of the big successful Fast and Furious films, and he was not the screenwriter on this one. I think, if anything, that probably had the bigger impact, but... You know, uh, but yeah, really, I don't, I don't think Moritz's involvement really had anything to do with it. All right, next up. Thanos writes, how much credit do you give the Russo brothers versus Kevin Feige for Captain America, the Winter Soldier? All right. This is an interesting question that comes up more and more and more every time a Russo brothers headed or directed movie comes out. When you look at the MCU, I mean, a bunch of their best and most successful films from a financial, a critic, audience, overall quality standpoint, are a lot of the ones that the Russo brothers directed. You're talking about Winter Soldier, Civil War, Infinity War, and Endgame. And obviously Endgame is the second biggest box office film of all time. It was the biggest, and then Avatar passed it, and then Endgame will get re-released at some point, and it'll take the number one spot again. Be that as it may. There are some people who feel like Winter Soldier is the greatest comic book film of all time. There are some people who feel like Civil War is the greatest comic book film of all time. There are some people who think Infinity War is the greatest comic book of all time. And then there are some people who feel like Endgame is the greatest comic book film of all time. Look, I say all that just to point out the fact that these were four extremely successful films. And highlights of the MCU. So 
once the Russo brothers finished with the MCU and got Agbo, that's the name of their production company, up and running where they, you know, got a bunch of other films made, the questions become how much of that success that they had in the MCU was due to them directing and how much of it was due to Kevin Feige. Now, you got to understand, I absolutely love the Russo brothers. I, I think they are great. Not only are they wonderful at what they do in making those movies, they're just really great, fun dudes to be around. Actually, give me give me a second. All right, I just wanted to bring up this picture. That's why I took a moment there. But like, um, like they had come into my studio uh, a number of times to, and they were always very generous with their time. Uh, like I think three different occasions they would come in and uh, do stuff with us whenever we asked them to come in. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful guys, Joe and Anthony Russo, just top-notch people. When I would run into them at premieres, they'd say, hey, John, and they like they remember you, and they would take time and talk. It was just, they're just top-notch guys, and I am always cheering for them. That being said, I'm, I'm going to be honest. Like 21 Bridges, which they did not direct, but they were in charge of that film. The one they did with Chadwick Boseman, bad movie. Extraction. I know there's a bunch of people who like Extraction, and there's cer- certainly some great action in it, especially that one car chase scene. Absolutely, but overall, I thought that movie was a mess. It made it narratively was bad. The character didn't make much sense. The ending was terrible. Mm. And then what's the one I'm thinking of? Is it Cherry? Um, the one they just did with uh, Tom Holland. Oh my God, that was not good. That movie was not good, and a lot of people were very excited for that one coming out, and then they did another one. Anyway, it's, I would say the jury is still out. The the jury is still out as far as I'm concerned when it comes to the Russo brothers. But I would say right now, it is starting to look more and more to me that the big success of Winter Soldier... Uh, Civil War, Infinity War, Endgame was more Kevin Feige. Now, again, I think the the Russo brothers are going to have a lot more time and they're going to make and be behind and direct and produce and write and whatever, a lot more movies. So let's ask the question again in a few years. But for right now, as a massive fan and supporter of the Russo brothers, I would be disingenuous if I didn't say that it it's it's looks more and more to me like maybe it was more Kevin Feige because I haven't been able to see the Russos replicate that level of greatness in their post Marvel and their post Kevin Feige partnership. So I don't know, or maybe it's just that, you know, Kevin Feige and the Russos together is just a magical team that just totally brings the best out of everything. I don't know, but right now it at least appears to be more Kevin Feige. Now, again, ask me that question again in a few years, and I might have a totally different answer for you. And I will still look forward to everything the Russo brothers do with great anticipation. But, you know, my job is to be honest with you, and just because I like the Russo brothers very much doesn't mean I I shouldn't be honest, and so that's kind of my take on that. Anyway, thanks for writing that in, Thanos. All right, next up, we got Sam Fisher who writes, 
The other day you talked about the Wonder Years reboot. I'm interested because it has Dual Hill as the dad, who I love from Psych, and Don Cheadle is voicing the adult narrator. It's not set in modern day, and it's set in Birmingham, Alabama during the Civil Rights Movement. Yeah, we, we talked about this. I think it was Aaron and I talked about this the other day. I never watched the Wonder Years, so I have no vested interest in this. But listen, if you can come up with a concept that takes the core concept of an older show, but then applies a different context to it, that can be creative and that can be very interesting. So while other people have an issue of them redoing the Wonder Years, but with a different context, I actually think it can be a very positive thing. Doesn't mean the show's going to be any good. But again, I never watched the Wonder Years, so I don't care. I really don't care. This show can be the next Breaking Bad or it can be the next Iron Fist. I really don't care. I have no dog in this hunt as some people put it. But I still at least think it's an interesting idea, so we'll see where they go with that, Sam. All right, next up, we've got uh, Holly Hoop, who writes, one of three. In Loki episode four, at seven minutes and 22 seconds, while in Lamentous One, Sylvie says to Loki, the universe wants to uh, break free so it manifests chaos, like me being born goddess of mischief. Later, at 21 minutes and 6 seconds, when Mobius is making fun of Loki for liking Sylvie, Mobius uh, says, No wonder you have no clue what caused the Nexus event. Both of you were swooning over each other. It's the apocalypse. Two variants of the same being forming this sick, twisted, romantic relationship that's pure chaos that could break reality. Could that be the answer on how Nexus event was created? Because it was pure chaos. Love your show. Happy to see someone do what they love. Congrats on your ongoing success and bring on the filthy. Well, thank you so much for that, Holly. I appreciate that. Now, that has become a popular opinion. Because obviously, again, once when Sylvia and Loki were on Lamentous One and the world was about to end, and then all of a sudden, the, um, the TVA sees this big Nexus event starting, this big variant spike, they go, well, now we know where they are. They're on Lamentous One. We got to go there and get them. And so they go and, and capture them there. The problem is still this. As far as what was causing the Nexus, I mean, was it the, the love developing between these two variants of the same being falling in love with each other? Maybe. But here's the big problem with that. The big problem with that is it breaks the rules that this show already set up. They were in an apocalypse event. If the TVA didn't go and save them, they were going to die. Thus, no Nexus event should have happened. It's the same principle as Loki being in Pompeii saying, hey, everybody, I'm from the future. You're all about to die. See, all that would cause a massive Nexus event, except for the fact that all those people were going to die. And hence, there can be no ramifications of what he was saying. And that is why Sylvie has been hiding out in apocalypse events. So it doesn't matter. This is something that Loki has to explain in the final two episodes because it doesn't matter how powerful or unusual that event was. The fact of the matter is they, without the intervention of the TVA, they were about to die and therefore them falling in love should be completely inconsequential to the universe because that whole planet was about to be destroyed. The one thing that one of our viewers wrote in, I think it might have been it might have been Marie who wrote this in. It's like, what if though the variance was the fact that they were about to die on Lamentous One? 
because they're never supposed to die on Lamentus 1. And that in itself was the Nexus event. And the TVA going to capture them or save them from Lamentus 1, that in and of itself is the Nexus event. That could be an explanation. I don't know. We'll have to wait and see. Anyway, Holly, again, thanks for writing that in, and thank you for the kind words, man. I really appreciate it. All right, next up. Uh, where are we at? Right, Andy Hong, who writes, one of two. Hey, John, remember the Superman and Lois episode where Kal-El had to retrieve John Henry Irons, had to uh, retrieve John Henry Irons from being kidnapped by another Kryptonian in the Kryptonite weapons lab? Kryptonite gas was used on Superman and a brooding, vengeful guy was towering over him with a Kryptonite spear. If only they had a family member who shared the same name for Superman to beg to save. Of course, then Lois intervened and appealed appealed to said vengeance's guy's humanity and prevented him from killing Superman. Let me tell you about the one thing about that scene that bothered me. Now, I am loving this Superman and Lois show, which I never thought I would because I had zero interest in this garbage um, jobber of a Superman that CW created, but they've done a total about face with Superman and Lois, and now I'm really into this show. I'm really liking it. But that scene always bothered me, all right? And the reason that scene bothered me is because, you know, oh, there's all this kryptonite gas. Oh, just hold your breath. Like, the last time I checked, for Superman to be affected by kryptonite, he doesn't have to breathe it in. Now, obviously, that would be much more potent, but just being around kryptonite is supposed to weaken Superman and kill him, if not removed from it fairly quickly. It's supposed to render him useless. If there's all this kryptonite gas in the air, he shouldn't have to breathe it in in order for it to affect him. Just the fact that that gas was there in the room at all should have dropped both the Kryptonians to their knees. Superman and the other guy who was fighting. It both should have just dropped them both to their knees. That should have been it. That should have been it. They don't have to breathe in kryptonite for it to affect them, just being in the same room as it should have affected them. Now, maybe I'm being a little bit of a cannon nitpicker there, but that, even though I love this show, that scene, Andy, always bothered me, and it still does. It completely does. I know I need to get over it, but it still bothers me. All right, Suthius writes, The Tomorrow War. Uh, great action, great visuals. A lot of the times, great visuals. Sometimes very questionable visuals. Anyway, uh, Pratt was great. Monsters were great. Uh, story, good enough. Some cheesy lines here and there. Some wonky ADR. Some wonky editing choices. Did not like the monster's point of view at all. Overall, I was entertained. I had fun watching it. Yeah, listen, I was very skeptical about the Tomorrow War. Um, mostly because of the fact that Amazon inexplicably hid the film for so long and wouldn't let reviews come out early for it. And that's very, that usually makes it look like a studio or a distributor is hiding their film. Um, not to mention the trailers weren't great, but I quite enjoyed it. I did. Would I call it a great movie? No, but I, I thought it was quite good. They did some things in it I hadn't seen before. They did some things in it I've seen a hundred times, but still overall I thought it was quite good. I really like the relationship between Chris Hemsworth, even though it's not a big part of the movie, but the relationship between Chris Hemsworth and his dad being played by J.K. Simmons. Yvonne Strahovski, I love her. Um, I really like her in The Handmaid's Tale, and I thought her in this was great. I thought the relationship between her and the Chris Pratt character was really good. Um, overall, 
solid, entertaining sci-fi action flick. I quite liked it. I did. Again, I don't think it's a great movie, but quite good. Quite good. So, yeah, and, and way better than I was expecting it to be, for sure, Suthius. Okay, next up. Andy Hong also writes, After watching Fast 9, I'm glad Universal doesn't own DC or Marvel. They would cross it over with Fast and the Furious, and Dom would somehow kick the asses of every superhero and supervillain with a pinky. He would say that he would say to the Justice League, I ain't got a league, I got family. Yeah, again, listen, it, everybody knows the deep, deep fan love I have for Vin Diesel, right? The dude's amazing. I love Vin Diesel. And other than Fast 9, I am a huge fan of the Fast and Furious franchise. That said, my one big criticism, the thing that's always bothered me about this thing that I love and about this talent that I love in, in Vin Diesel is that Dominic Toretto has become such an uninteresting character because he's invincible. He is an invincible character. Like, I'm, I'm sorry. Like, just go back to the Fast and Furious where Jason Statham was the big bad guy right? There is no way in fuck that Dominic Toretto should be able to take that character in a fight. There's just no way in holy hell that should ever happen, right? That that character should destroy Dominic Toretto in a heartbeat. But then again, it's just filled with all these ridiculous scenarios where Dominic Toretto, look, I've joked about it before, but it's absolutely true. They could do a scene where Dominic Toretto is surrounded by the entire Russian military and Dominic Toretto will win that fight in a few minutes. F9 is a great example of that. Besides doing physically absolutely impossible things constantly, like they even finally break it down and have a scene where, and Vin Diesel's producer wants to have this scene where Dominic Toretto jumps into a fight with 30 armed soldiers, 30 armed military trooper guys, single-handedly. And he kills a whole bunch of them, like kills a whole bunch of them. And then finally, when it starts to look like the 30 guys against one is starting to get the slightest of upper hands against him, he is able, with the might of Hercules and Samson combined, grab this big chain that's hanging there for some reason and single-handedly pull down a complete concrete structure that to fall and take everybody out. And they all die except for him, of course. They make him invincible, which makes him an utterly uninteresting character. And it, it's frustrating it's very, as a fan of the series and of him, that becomes frustrating after a while. Anyway, it's this kind of me. All right, next up. Uh, Big Will writes, hey, John, keep up the great work. Thank you so much, Big Will. I appreciate that, man. Uh, my question is, do you think we'll ever get a proper ending to Terminator, the Sarah, Chronic, uh, Sarah Connor Chronicles? No. Uh, I thought season one was great, but season two had its moments. But the cliffhanger at the end needs to be resolved. No, it doesn't need to be resolved. Like, no movie or TV show needs to be made. Not another Star Wars movie, not another MCU movie. They don't need to. It's whether the audience wants it. And unfortunately, the fact... Look, you talk to a lot of ter uh, Terminator fans... They'll all point to the Sarah Chronic, uh, Sarah Chronic Chronicles, the Sarah Connor Chronicles, uh, with uh, Lena Headley from uh, Game of Thrones fame, as being one of the best Terminator things ever made. The problem was it didn't have an audience; not enough people watched it. 
and which is unfortunate because it was good, but nobody watched it. So you see, no movie or TV show needs to be made. They make them based on whether they think there's an audience there to watch it. And if the audience wants it, they give it. But if the audience wants it, they're going to watch it, and the audience didn't watch it. So understanding that, uh, on my, I would say that unfortunately, no, the answer is no. I do not think we are going to get a conclusion to the Sarah Connor Chronicles. It's just not enough people watched it. They canceled it. And that's the end of the story, unfortunately. All right. You never, like, stranger things have happened. Stranger things have happened. It could, in some remote possibility, maybe happen. And I hope it does, but I really don't see it happening. All right. Uh, Big Will also writes, Hey, John, I have a Star Wars question for you. Do you think we'll ever see a live-action series in Disney Plus of a young Mace Windu? No. Uh, and if so, who would cast in the lead role? I never do ex-actor and ex-role questions. Just so you know, I, I, I mention that often. I never do ex-actor and ex-role questions. Uh, my choice would be Michael B. Jordan or John David Washington. So you pick the two most popular, famous black actors in Hollywood. <laughs> anyway, so I'm, I'm, just, I'm, I'm, just giving you, I'm just giving you a shit, Big Will. I'm just giving you a hard time. Um, well, first of all, honestly, Michael B. Jordan and John David Washington are both brilliant. Neither of them are a good fit to play Mace, a young Mace Windu. So just that. But I'm not going to get into the who I would cast because I don't do X-actor and X-role questions. Do I ever think they'll do it? No. No, I don't. Um, nor do I think they should. I'm, I'm very fatigued of, let's do a young this character movie and let's do a young that character show. I mean... I am tired of prequel material. Like Mandalorian is, even though it is technically prequel, it's all different characters that we have no idea what's really going to happen. It's a totally different context. So I'm good with that, but they already did young Han Solo. And listen, the solo star Wars movie was a good movie. It's a good space adventure movie. I enjoyed it. But it didn't, it really, they really could have done without making it. it. I think it was a mistake to make that movie. The The box office numbers prove there was no audience. There was no desire from the audience to see that movie, even though I thought it turned out well. And now we're getting an Obi-Wan and then we like, can we just move forward with the storytelling? Can we just do that? Now, no, now, I say that, Big Will, knowing that there's a lot of people watching this video right now that would really quite love to see a young Mace Windu show, and that's great. For me, it the idea frustrates me. Not that I don't love the character I do, but it's time to move forward. We had tons of Mace Windu in a couple of the movies, in the cartoons. We've had tons of Mace Windu. Can we please stop going backwards for the stories and start going forwards? That's just kind of my take on it. That's just kind of my take on it, Big Will. All right, next up. We've got uh, King Beltran, seven writes. Hey, John, did you ever see the NBC show Chuck? Oh, I did. I loved Chuck. Um, if so, what was your take on that show? Actually, we were just talking about Yvonne Strahovski, who is in uh, The Tomorrow War, and she was also in, she's currently in Handmaid's Tale. She was, of course, the big female lead in Chuck as well, and she was great in that. Uh, if so, what was your take on that show? I think that the show was very underrated. I don't think it was underrated. Everybody who watched it loved it. I don't think it was underrated at all. People really like Chuck a lot. Um, it was very underrated and ended on a what happened cliffhanger. If I could have a show for one more season, that would be it. And give me uh, give me one quick second here again. Uh, pausing. And okay, we're back. I, I paused for a second because I wanted to find this picture and bring it up. Now, 
some of you guys may know, like, do I like Chuck? I love Chuck. Now, for some of you know, I used to run an annual party or was a part of a group that ran an annual party the, the, uh, uh, at Comic-Con every year, uh, partially through AMC. It was like the biggest party that we would throw that, you know, that, that would be a Comic-Con or whatever. And this one year uh, we did this party and a lot of people came. I mean, we had... Um, we had Edgar Wright there, Stan Lee there. Uh, I mean, Brandon Routh was there, all that kind of stuff. But other people who were at our party that year that we threw at Comic-Con was the cast of Chuck. And the only person not in this picture and who was not there was Yvonne Strahovski. But there you can see the entire rest of the cast of Chuck was there, including Zach Levi right beside me. And that's me in the bright white shirt. Terrible, terrible picture quality. Yes. Um, but that was a, uh, great night and got to hang out with those dudes. Actually, the dude right beside me that I got my arm around there, uh, he is, a, he was of course, Chuck's best friend in the show, Chuck. Um, I'm actually friends with his wife. He, his wife and I have been friends on social media, uh, before they were married, uh, because she was a publicist on Aaron Cummings movie, bitch slap. And we met while, while she was promoting bitch slap and she and I became friends and then became social media friends. I've, I haven't seen her in like 10 years, but we, we have like liking each other interactions and stuff like that on our various uh, social media stuff, uh, for years, for years. And then I found out she married him. It was kind of cool. So yes, I loved that show. I love Zach Levi. Yvonne Serhofsky has gone on to have a great career as well. I would love it if one of the streaming, even Peacock, if they were to do a special limited six episode um, limited series of, you know, Chuck 2022, where we pick up with those two characters. Now, I would love it. I, I don't think it'll ever happen, but I would totally love it. Absolutely, I would. All right. Thanks for that, King Beltran. Next up, Crashing Coyote writes, how is it possible for Kang to be the villain for Loki if Loki finished filming before the pandemic and John Majors wasn't cast as Kang until September? Ah, we'll talk about that in a second. Plus, I feel Kang would be way too obvious. Kevin Feige is smart. He probably wants everyone to think it's Kang. Okay, a couple of things about that. Let's start with the last part. It's way too obvious. Obvious to who? 90% of the people watching the show have never heard of Kang the Conqueror. Let's just be very clear about that. All right. 90, there are 10% of the people who watch this who know all about the comics and know who Kang the Conqueror is, but at most, that number is 10%. At most. So if 9 out of 10, minimum, 9 out of 10 people have never don't read the comics and have never even heard of Kang, then how can it possibly be obvious to them that it's Kang? Go back to WandaVision. For a lot of people who knew the comics, a lot of people thought, oh, it's obvious. It's She's Agatha. She's Agatha Harkness. But the vast, 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 vast majority of the people who were watching WandaVision had never heard of Agatha Harkness, never seen the show. So it was not obvious to them. To the vast majority of the people, it wasn't. This could be another situation like that. So there's that. As far as the first part of your question, how could it possibly be Kang if this show finished before the pandemic, finished shooting before the pandemic started and Jonathan Majors wasn't cast until September? Remember this. Ben Affleck was cast as Batman six months before they ever announced that he was cast as Batman. You got to remember, by the time you and I hear about particularly big lead roles, 
by the time you and I hear about a casting and the casting becomes announced, it had actually been done and signed many, many, many months, maybe even a year or more before we ever heard about it. So you got to keep that in mind. Now, am I sitting here saying that Kang is going to end up being the big villain in the Loki show? No, I'm not necessarily saying that, but it is still a possibility. And just because we only heard about Jonathan Majors being cast in, it was either August or September. Anyway, just because that's all when we heard about Majors being cast, that doesn't mean that's when he was cast. He was definitely cast long before that. The question is, how long before that? that? That's the real question there. So it's still possible, Crashing. It's still possible. All right, next up and final question of the day comes to us from Francis, who writes, Hey, John, have you watched the new show, The Mysterious Benedict Society on Disney Plus? I have not. It's really entertaining and interesting on an intellectual level. And by the way, the actor that plays Opie in Sons of Anarchy is one of the main characters. Okay, that's intriguing to me because, yes, Opie was my favorite character on Sons of Anarchy before they killed him off. Uh, He totally was. Um, So for that reason, what's his name again? Ryan Hurst? Is that his name? I can't remember. He was also in Remember the Titans, but I, I, I can't remember his name right now. Anyway, I love that character. Listen, I, I'll tell you what. I've seen the promos for it on Disney+. Plus. It does not look like my cup of tea, and I got a lot of things out there that I am interested in seeing that I'm having a hard time watching, so I'm probably not going to watch it unless I hear from like 100 other people that it's really good and I should check it out, but it, it again, it just doesn't seem like one that's really up my alley. Uh, but again, I'll keep my ears open and see if more people like it, but I do love the fact that Again, I think his name is Ryan Hurst. The guy who plays Opie's in that. That is intriguing to me. All right, guys. With that down, that will do it for this installment of the companion videos. Thank you so much, everybody, for taking time to watch this video. And a special thank you to all you guys who sent in those live comments and questions. Number one, because you gave us great fun things to talk about, whether we agreed or disagreed. That's all part of the fun. And number two... You supported this channel as you did it, and all of us involved with the John Campus Show, thank you guys so much for that support. Now, we definitely do indeed have a lot more questions to get caught up on, but that pretty much takes us up to Friday's show. So now we have a whole bunch more to cover, and we'll start with those on the John Campus Show tomorrow when Robert Meyer Burnett joins me as well. So we'll look forward to seeing you guys then. But until then, guys, that'll do it for me. My name's John Campia, and until next time, my friends, bye-bye.